Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following sermon on July 9th, 2017. When I was a freshman in college, I discovered the music of the late singer-songwriter Keith Green. He was a pioneer of Christian rock, and even to this day, his music moves me deeply. I highly recommend a compilation album called The Ministry Years, Volume 1. And on that compilation, you will hear a song called Asleep in the Light. At the climax of that song, Keith Green says, Jesus rose from the dead, and you won't even get out of bed. Those words convicted me back when I was 18 years old, and they convict me today. Especially as we think about how little we are often willing to risk for the sake of our faith in Christ. It's as if we it's as if we don't consider how high the stakes are for living out our Christian faith in this world. We we have so many loved ones who are living and dying and facing eternity without a saving relationship with God through Christ. That ought to motivate us to do everything we can to share with others the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope this sermon inspires us to risk everything for the sake of our faith, just as the Christians in the churches to whom Peter is writing were willing to risk everything. Our scripture today comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, I was on vacation last week. As is my tradition when I go on vacation, I took my boys to the movies, and it just so happens that Spider-Man Homecoming premiered last week, and we saw that very fine movie. It was great. I recommend it, and it supports the local economy because much of it was filmed nearby in Fayetteville. In the movie, there's a suspenseful scene in which our hero, who is really just a teenage boy, Peter Parker, is racing up the side of the Washington Monument to save a group of his own classmates from falling to their death. They're they're in an elevator at the top of the monument, and it's about to fall. And remember, Spider-Man has one of his superpowers is he can stick to the sides of surfaces, and so he's climbing up the side of this great monument. And when he is near the top of the monument, where the obelisk comes to a point... He looks down, and he is suddenly afraid, afraid of heights, afraid of falling, as any of us would be. Inside his special Spider-Man suit is a Siri-like device, an artificial intelligence that he can talk to and that will talk back to him. And when he stops, she asks him what's wrong, and he explains... I've never been this high up before. And just like Siri on your iPhone, this 
he calls this, uh, this woman's voice um, Karen. <laughs> Karen speaks in this chipper, cheerful tone of voice. And she informs him that he forgot to reload the parachute in his built-in, that's built into his suit. And if he falls from this height, it will surely prove fatal. <laughs> Thanks, Karen, for that encouraging word. But my point is this. The stakes for Peter Parker couldn't be higher. Every move he makes on top of that monument could mean life or death. And brothers and sisters, the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians for whom being faithful to Jesus is also a matter of life or death. And they know it. They knew that their allegiance to Christ, their faithfulness to him and to his mission could mean, could cost them their very lives. And they were okay with that, or at least they were trying to be. This was the attitude of the early church. This was Peter's attitude. I told you last week about how Peter ministered the gospel with, with, with a death sentence hanging over his head because of what Jesus told him at the end of John chapter 21. Later in this same letter, Peter writes, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's almost like you can't have one without the other. Can't have glory without the suffering. This was the attitude of Paul that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And this was the attitude of the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And of course, it's the attitude that Jesus expects his followers to have. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That is, His instrument of shame, humiliation, torture, and death, and follow me. This is not optional for disciples of Christ. If we treat our relationship with Christ so lightly, if we treat uh, the the cross-bearing aspect of discipleship as if it's some optional extra feature for more advanced Christians, but not for us normal, average, everyday, middle-class American Christians, then we might be surprised on Judgment Day when we hear our Lord say to us, I never knew you. Depart from me. Just last week, the former um, megachurch pastor and best-selling author, Francis Chan, he wrote the book Crazy Love, which I know some of you have read. He gave a talk to, some, uh, to a group of Facebook employees about why he stepped down from his church, the church that he founded in San Francisco so many years ago. And seven years ago, he stepped down. And um, he said that he left his church because he realized that he had grown comfortable pastoring that church. And he knew that God did not call him to be comfortable. In fact, 
He doesn't believe that God calls any of us Christians to a life of comfort. And he said something that struck a chord with me. He said that seven years ago, before he left that church, he missed the old Francis Chan That stupid kid who fell in love with Jesus in high school and starts calling everyone in the yearbook that he knew to tell them about Jesus because he was so concerned about their eternal destiny. That touches something deep within me because I remember being a kid like that. Do any of you remember being a kid like that? Are any of you like that today? I I worked at Kroger for a couple of years when I was in high school. And one summer, we had a manager who was committed to improving customer service. And he insisted that all of us baggers uh, take out our customers' bags to their cars. And this was like a serious initiative. There were signs and banners promoting it all over the store. And I promise you, the 16-year-old version of Brent used to pray, God, show me how I can use the two or three minutes between bagging the groceries and taking them out to the customer's car, how I can use that short amount of time to tell this customer about Jesus Christ. And I even had gospel tracts in my pockets and I would hand them out if I thought that was appropriate. Why did I do that? For the same reason that Francis Chan was calling kids he knew in his yearbook. Because I was in love with Jesus and I loved these Kroger customers enough to care whether or not they they spent their eternity in heaven or hell. I love them enough to want them to love Jesus like I loved Jesus. Was I wrong back then to do that? Granted, the older, the more sophisticated, the more worldly version of me, the one who was far more interested in people loving me than loving Jesus, that version of me would have said, yes, you were wrong. But now I know better. And I changed. And if you need to change, I pray that you will. God does not call us Christians to be comfortable. And given that the time that we spend in this life and the time that we spend in this world is the tiniest fraction of a second compared to the time that we spend in eternity with God in heaven or elsewhere. It's crazy. It's irrational that we wouldn't be willing to sacrifice some of the comfort that comes from being a normal, average, everyday, middle-class American Christian. And yet, are we willing to sacrifice these comforts? I'm not questioning our sincerity in our faith. I know we love Jesus. I know we want Jesus in our life. But we want all this other stuff too. We love all this other stuff too. And we're secretly glad that unlike these first century Christians, God isn't forcing us to choose between Jesus and everything else. I saw an article last week 
about a Methodist church in our conference who uh, the, the pastor was saying that, that he's using um, the Facebook Live streaming service to broadcast his church's worship services. I think that's a great idea. If we could get a Wi-Fi signal in here, maybe I'd try doing that sometime. <laughs> but I think it's a great idea. I love using technology as, as a tool for evangelism. And I think that's how this church is using it too. I mean, and he, in fact, he said that his church has been so successful on Facebook Live that there are now three times as many people who were viewing the worship service on Facebook Live as actually show up in their sanctuary for worship. All that is great. So far, so good. But here's the rub. This pastor was wondering aloud whether or not or how he could count all of these people who were watching Facebook Live on Sunday morning, how he could count them in his church's weekly worship attendance total. (laughs) And I thought, I, I get it. I get it. I understand the temptation. But I thought, is that where we are as a culture? Are we now supposed to be okay with would-be disciples of Jesus Christ who value their comfort so much that the idea of getting up on Sunday morning, of getting out of bed, of getting dressed, of driving a few miles to church, and of physically showing up for worship is is a (laughs) deal-breaker. Never mind tithing. Never mind the disciplines of prayer and Bible study and fasting. Never mind witnessing. Never mind serving. I'm just talking about sitting through an hour-long worship service. I'm talking about doing something that my mom made me do from age five onward, which was sit through big church. If we're not willing to even do that, what would make us think that we would be able to do what these Christians in Asia Minor were willing to do every day they got out of bed, which was to put their lives on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ. What makes us think we'd be willing to do that? Because make no mistake, here was the evangelistic message that Peter's churches were offering the world. It sounded, here, this was the pitch, if you want to call it that. It sounded something like this. If you accept this message that I'm sharing with you, if you agree that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he rose from the dead, if you agree to put your whole trust in his grace and mercy, if you live your life in obedience to him, you may get killed because of it. It may cost you everything you have. And you need to be okay with that. And remarkably enough, though through the power of the Holy Spirit, so many people said yes to this message that within three centuries, the Christian movement conquered the the greatest empire that the world had ever known. And we say, by contrast, being a Christian is so easy, you don't even have to get out of bed, just reach for your smartphone. In so many ways, 
our context is very different from the context in which Peter is writing. And yet, our little church needs the exact same encouragement that Peter's little churches needed. Sure, the Christians in Peter's day, they they might have been 500 feet up in the air on top of that tower, you know, looking down and being afraid. And maybe our church is five feet up in the air, looking down and feeling afraid. But we still need the same encouragement to overcome our fear. And I'm not talking here just about the fear of, of witnessing. That's a symptom of the problem. Fear of tithing is another symptom. But we don't tithe and we don't witness for the same reason. Because we're afraid of giving our lives completely to God. We're afraid of saying, whatever you want, God. My life does not belong to me. Everything I have is a gift from you. You've given it to me to use for your purposes, for your glory, for your kingdom. And so I offer it back to you. Do with me what you will, God. I belong to you. Take me and use me, God. We're afraid of making God our only treasure in life because we're so attached to all these earthly treasures and we're afraid of losing them. So maybe we're only standing five feet off the ground. But we need this encouragement from God's word to climb higher and without fear. And encouragement is precisely the reason that Peter writes these words in today's scripture. In fact, in the rest of the chapter as well. We'll look at, again, verses 19 through 22 next week. But the the first encouragement comes in verse 18. And because verse 18 is tied to verse 17, let's look at them both together. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter says, if that should be God's will. Remember last week's sermon. I, I said that one difficult conclusion from This first epistle of Peter, in fact, throughout all of Scripture, is that God sometimes wants us to suffer. And God can bring a lot of good out of that suffering. God can sanctify us. God can can use it to transform us into the children that God wants us to be. And as difficult as that is, Ultimately, that can make us happier and more joyful as we learn to trust more and more in him. So, for Christ also, so, so anyway, uh, so God sometimes wants us to suffer. And we should be able to endure that suffering for, for what he says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. For Christ also suffered. Peter wants these Christians to know that when they suffer, it's not because God is angry at them. And out of this anger, God is punishing them for their sin. Why? Because our role model 
Peter says, is Jesus. In last week's scripture, remember we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Do we remember where those footsteps lead? They lead to first to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, to being arrested. They lead to being beaten, mocked, spit upon, whipped. They lead to being falsely tried and convicted. They lead down the Via Dolorosa to the cross on Calvary. They lead to Christ's death, his suffering, and we are supposed to follow him. So we, we know that the Father loved Jesus. Jesus did not suffer because God was angry with his son Jesus. On the contrary, he couldn't have loved him more. And he's our role model. And we know when we suffer, it, God could not love us more, just like Jesus. Why should we expect to be spared from suffering? But how does this encourage us today? When we suffer, I believe that it sometimes gives Satan a foothold in our lives, an opportunity to taunt us. See, if God really loved you, do you think he would let you get cancer? If God really loved you, did you think that he would let your child go through all this trouble? If God really loved you, do you think he would let your marriage fall apart? If God really loved you, do you think that, uh, that you would lose your, your wife or your husband or your job or your business or your life savings? What did, what did you do to make God angry with you? I bet it was because of that time that you... I, I bet it was because of that season in your life in which you... I bet it was because of that sin that you committed or this other sin. Make no mistake, after we become Christians, the Bible says that we will be disciplined. We'll experience God's discipline, but that's a loving kind of discipline. The same way that we parents would discipline our own children. It's good for us. It's not punishment for our sin any longer. It can't be. Not if, if by punishment we mean that God is angry with us. That, that just can't happen. Why? Because of what Peter says next. Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. What does it mean that Christ suffered once? It's true that we receive the gift of eternal life in Christ excuse me, that before we received that gift, we were under God's wrath. God's wrath is God's justifiable anger toward our sin. And we were under God's wrath because of our sin. God hates sin. God promises to to punish sin. The wages of sin is death, and not just physical death, but spiritual death and hell. But Christ suffered once for our sins. What does that mean? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ prays that prayer? um, If if possible, take this cup 
from me. What does this cup refer to? Well, we're told in Jeremiah 25 and in Isaiah 51, this is the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup from which which all of us would have to drink because of our sins. Except Jesus also prayed in the garden, if possible, uh, let this cup pass pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus drank that cup of wrath for us on the cross. He suffered the penalty of our sins for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And when Peter says that he suffered once, he means that God requires no further suffering for our sin, no further sacrifice. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, he means that all of our sins have been fully and finally and completely dealt with. Jesus drank the cup of wrath down to its bitter dregs for us so we wouldn't have to. So if we are united with Christ through faith, there are now no more sins that deserve to be punished. They've already been punished. God cannot be angry with you or with me because of our sins, because his anger was poured out on the cross of his son, Jesus. Christ's death was once for all. It was a once for all sacrifice. Now, I have a good friend named David who's a devoted Catholic. And many years ago, David and his family, did he have a kid at the time? They had a child, they have many children now, but they had one child at the time. And they came to see us when I was in seminary and I was living down in Forsyth above Macon, living in a parsonage next to the church, this little church that I pastored back then. I was a local pastor. And um, I was excited because David and his family were going to go to church with us the next morning. And I looked forward, you know, to having having him experience, you know, what I've been doing in my in my life. Um, and uh, so they arrived, on, they arrived on, on, on Saturday afternoon. And almost as soon as they walk in the door, David explains that he's looking forward to, to you know, catching up with us and finding out what, what, what's going on in our life. He's looking forward to coming to church uh, the, the next morning. But first, he and his family have to go to Mass at a, at a Catholic church uh, in Macon. They had a six o'clock mass and they were going to go to mass and then come back and then we could catch up with them, right? And now I was, uh, I was a, little, um, a little insulted by this, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I know that they were coming to my church the next day, but, but I thought, wait, my church is not good enough for you? You can't worship in a, in a, in a Protestant church church for even one Sunday without also going and uh, worshiping in a Catholic church the night before. (laughs) But I didn't understand Catholic theology like I do now. Catholics don't believe in a once for all sacrifice. Every time a Catholic goes to mass, they believe that Christ is sacrificed all over again in Holy Communion. And when they receive communion, Catholics believe that they are getting just enough of God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness to last them a week or so. And they have to keep going back again and again and again just to make sure that their sins are covered by Christ's sacrifice, just to make sure that they're truly forgiven. 
So now I can look at look back and feel sorry for David, because while we have so much in common in our Christian faith, he can't quite get rid of this fear. Maybe God is still mad at me or or he will be mad at me unless I, I keep doing this and this and this and this other thing. Are we so different, though? Are we so different? I mean, have you, you ever been living your Christian life? And you think, gosh, I'm doing pretty well now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I needed God's saving grace a few months ago, but I've been doing pretty well on my own here, you know, resisting the devil and, and fighting back temptation. And I've been very faithful and things are going well. And, um, well, I'm sure God's very proud to have me on his team right now. <laughs> um, and then suddenly we fall, something happens, and we realize, oh no, we're terrible sinners after all, and we're not feeling so good about ourselves, and we start to wonder, well, maybe, maybe God doesn't love me like I thought he did. Well, I want us to know that if so long as we continue to trust in Jesus, we can be confident that, that Christ's once-for-all sacrifice continues to be sufficient for us. That's the only basis on which we are accepted by God. Even on our best days as followers of Jesus, we still need God's grace at every moment in order to be acceptable to God, in order to be saved. It's never up to us. Peter saves the last, the best for last, and so will I. So, why did Christ suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Listen by contrast to the prophet Isaiah's frightening words in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. We are separated from God because of our sins. And now, in chapter 3, verse 18 of Peter's first epistle, it's as if he's considering this separation that Isaiah talks about. And he says in so many words, not anymore. Because of what Christ did, there's now no longer any separation between us and God. Jesus has brought us to the Father. It's as if Jesus has opened that curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies in the temple. And he's led us right in there. And we're able to go in there not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness, which has been given to us as a, as a gift. And brothers and sisters, I am convinced that that's a message worth living and dying for. Amen? Almighty God, let us live our lives remembering how high the stakes are for our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, for family members, Remembering that everyone needs to come within the reach of your saving embrace. And we have a role to play in that. Help us to do so without fear. 
Help us to live our lives confident that we can obey you and we can follow you and we can suffer anything because of you and your Holy Spirit. And we'll be okay because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider joining us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church, which is in downtown Hampton, Georgia, on West Main Street. We have two services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional. Thanks, and I hope to see you there.